all. Welcome back to another Battleborn Duckers podcast here. Tonight we have got the great and all-powerful Mike Reese. And if you don't know who he is, we call him the Puppet Master. Well, that's the name I just made up for him. But he is the one that just gets stuff done in the wildlife community. He's behind the scenes, always working. I'll let him introduce himself and, you know, uh, tell, tell truths, all the lies I'm telling here. But... He is, he is just a, an awesome conservationist. We're excited to have him on here tonight. The topic of our podcast tonight is we're going to talk about conservation in Nevada and how you do it and how it's done and uh, hopefully just have a great conversation. Hey, Mike, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little about yourself. Well, thanks. I'm a uh, 50-year resident of Las Vegas. Um, I've been hunting, fishing, outdoor-related since I could probably walk. Uh, that's no lie. Um, I used to put tents up in my bedroom when I was probably four years old and sleep in them. So it's uh, dear to my heart and I, I love it. Um, it's a great subject tonight to talk about because, you know, even though we're getting into 2021, we got to understand how we got to where we're at today. Who brought us along? And uh, as I was growing up, there was an old saying as, remember who brought you to the dance. And tonight, I think that that's, we get to talk about some of those guys that brought us to the so-called dance. And that's where we're at today with the, with the state of affairs we have for wildlife, natural resources, the fishing, and stuff. So I'm willing to answer any questions you guys have or comment on uh, any statements you guys have. Yeah. No, um, well, I want to start off tonight by talking about one of the, I call them the, one of the giants in, you know, this... Um, the conservation effort, and we kind of lost him last week. Was yeah. it was it due to the coronavirus? Um, it was. It, it contributed to it. Yeah. Um, he uh, was older too. He, he's yeah. We're talking about Mr. Ron Lurie. Yes, sir. Seventy nine years old. One hell of a guy. Um, yes, he uh, he had a few underlying conditions, but you know, um, did it contribute? I don't know exact medical history and stuff, but I'm sure it probably did. It didn't help him. We know that. So uh, he had been in the hospital for a while. And uh, the report that I got is, you know, every time he'd get two steps, one step forward, it'd be two steps back in his recovery. So he just he just didn't have the strength and stuff. So um, he's up in the uh, green grass and fire so areas. Tell now. us a little bit about him. What was his life like? What did he do for conservation? Well, for the longest time, uh, some of the guys that really know him understand, he was always known as Art's son. Because his dad owned Discount Liquor Store. So when this town first started, hey, let's go see Art down at the liquor store. There you well, go. Ron was brought up in the liquor business and in the business, and so Ron was always known as Art's son. <laughs> he never had any true identity himself, jokingly, until he got into politics. He started getting up there. He got into the conservation stuff. And so, yes. So... As you look back of what he did, uh, he was a city councilman. He was a mayor um, in late 70s, early 80s. He was on the State Wildlife Commission. He's been with uh, um, the Fraternity of the Desert Bighorn. In fact, he's currently or was currently the uh, vice president of the Fraternity of the Desert Bighorn. But he's the kind of guy that even at 79 years old, if you've got a problem we need to get something done, he could help you get it done. He could find a way. He could find who had the money, who had the equipment, who had the time. And that's kind of where the uh, Fraternity of the Desert Bighorn got started back in 1964. So that had already been started. He got brought into that. 
And um, that's a, it's a great organization in itself. It stands on its own two feet. And uh, Ron was very proud to be known as a conservationist or a sportsman. And I think that's one of the things about if you've grown up around Las Vegas, I was lucky enough to grow up my entire life around Las Vegas. Is it really was? It's the movers and the shakers and the guys that could get things done. And you know, I know your family. I mean, farm basket from from way back, and you know, so that's one of those institutions that was a Nevada institution. It was, yeah. it was strictly a Las Vegas place, and so those guys that could get things done, we don't see that as much as we used to with yeah. the younger kids. But it's one of the reasons I like. Uh, Mike is the president, current president of the Woods and Water, Vegas Woods and Waters. Um, one of the reasons I like being on that group is it's a lot of older gentlemen that kind of still have that older Las Vegas mentality that we're going to yeah. get things done, and if we can't get it done, we're going to find out we can get it done. And I think it's people want to. We've talked about hunting quite a bit on this show, but I think what's missing a lot of times is the politics that it takes to make hunting viable yeah. in the state of, in the state of Nevada. And it's. We have a lot of forces pushing against us, especially lately, um, with some of some of the politics, and so it's getting these some of these old timers and some of these new up and comers to really put, get that political foothold in to yeah. maintain this conservation. Ron Lurie was one of the one of the big ones. We have some he was. some pretty big executives that are here that that do the same thing as, as far as our pocketbook as well. So yeah, yeah. what it sounded like with Ron Lurie is he just had his hands in everything. He did. He did, or if you hear about it, you could you could call him up and say, Ron, we're going to do a raffle, we're going to do a banquet. What you know? What do you you know? What do you have? And him, uh, most people would probably know him as Ron's Steakhouse in Arizona Charters. Oh, really? So that was Ron's. Okay. So Ron would say, Well, how's dinner for two? I said, That's great for a raffle. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only that, he would he would attend a lot of the banquets. He'd buy raffle tickets. He'd been on silent auctions. Whether he needed it or not, he was just finding another way to give some money to that organization because here in our valley, each organization kind of fills a little tiny niche. We joke about the Las Vegas Woods and Waters because their motto is, all we want to do is hunt and fish and talk about it. I like that. So, yeah. Whereas, you know, you get into the fraternity, you get into wind. Those are the boots on the ground guys. And people don't realize it, but right here in Las Vegas, we have over a million gallons of water on the mountain in guzzlers. That got there because of conservation organizations. Yeah. And the John Q. public out there doesn't know how, when did it start, how much water they hold. Well, not only did they help put them on there, we were in 200 days and no rain or something. We got a little bit today. Yeah. Not enough to fill anything up. Not close. But... Uh, you know, you got groups like the fraternity that has a, a bankroll for emergency water hauls at three dollars a gallon. They'll literally take a helicopter and go up and dump water into guzzlers so the wildlife have it. Three dollars a gallon, and how much is each one of those guzzlers hold? Um, some of them will hold uh, up to twenty thousand gallons. It depends on where they're placed. Yeah. Some are ten thousand. Some, but they're most of the tanks are in two thousand gallon increments. I remember when I was a kid, before I got involved with all these conservation groups. You know, I, I kind of stumbled into it, and I didn't. I really, I really didn't know all, all these groups are out here. I mean, you have the Bighorn Fraternity, you have Woods and Water. You joke that they don't do anything, but those guys open their pocketbooks every yes, single time do. you need something. Yeah, you got Woods and Water. You've got um, you've got Win. You've got Ducks Unlimited. You've got the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Mule Deer Foundation. SCI. Yeah, SCI. Yeah. Um, right Trout Unlimited. 
Trout Unlimited. Trout Unlimited. Trout Unlimited, yes. Yeah. You have that in the state, um, but you've got SCI with a, with a Las Vegas chapter yeah. that um, does stuff. I mean, uh, those guys did something. They, they kind of got out of their box, uh, and thank God they did. That, that one police officer that was shot uh, during the riots yeah. that needed some medical attention and stuff, SCI donated to his fund to help that family out. Now, don't know if the guy was a hunter or a fisherman or whatever, but they're still community-minded. And that's the thing a lot of people don't understand about us. Even though we're here, we might be hunters or fishers, we're still community people, and people don't look at us as the general public. By God, we are the core of the general public. Well, I don't think they realize either the contribution that these groups truly make. I mean, we talk about the Desert Bighorn Fraternity, and so... This year we've had an unprecedented period without rain. And so we had one particular guzzler that just happened to lose water. And Mike, do you remember how many head that they lost off of that one guzzler? I don't know the final count. I know that it was, it was more than a dozen. Um, but I think as a result of, if you look at, uh, and Al could probably tell us, but there's probably a bunch of guzzlers in that area because once that runs out, the other ones are going to dry up twice or three times as fast because hopefully they have other sheep that are starting to drink out of that. But to be honest, some of the sheep don't make it that far. Exactly. And therefore, that what you're talking about is what was our die-off. Um, I'm thinking, I haven't heard the totals, uh, don't quote me, but I'm thinking it's up around 30, 35 head. So and that's 30, 35 head that under normal circumstances that due to what the Desert Big Home Fraternity does with providing water, I don't think people realize that this isn't just hey, there's a plastic bucket up there and they go drop some water in it. No, they build full structures, they helicopter yeah. water in, they truck water in, however they got to get water in these remote locations. And it's not just for the desert bighorn, it's for the mule deer, it's for antelope, it's for any sort of big game. Even some small game are getting some benefit out of these. Some of the birds that are coming yeah. in there and, and drinking out of these, these guzzlers and stuff. And if it wasn't for this, just the ability to go out and enjoy wildlife on an everyday basis. Ron and I are lucky enough that we live in in the Moapa Valley area, and you know, we can go out at any time and go see bighorn in our backyard. Yeah. And, and and part of that is a big effort to the conservation efforts of what these groups do. The Desert Bighorn Fraternity is a huge one. When with going in and doing some different things for for different animals, and everybody kind of has their their specialty. But the idea of the Woods and Waters group is that's usually once a month where just about every wildlife group comes together. It's in some form, there's a yeah, member there's here or there. One member from every group and and yeah. so we can kind of bounce ideas off of each other. And this year, it's been such a tough year with with COVID and not being able to do our banquets and stuff. So we're bouncing ideas off of each other. Hey, are you, are you going to be able to do your banquet? What's it looking like for you guys? And where we can kind of fill a void with the other groups and where they can fill our voids and, and how we survive through this lack of funding that we've, we're going to have this next year. So... so what I was talking about was when I was out before I knew all these conservation groups, I'd be out hunting. I mean, I was always a hunter as a kid. You know, my family would go out hunting. We didn't have, we weren't the most wealthy hunters, but we'd always go walk around the desert. You see these huge projects. Yeah. You know, a guzzler is how many, how many square footage is the average runoff for the, the metal pans? Most of the ones down here in the Las Vegas uh, Valley are 40 feet wide, 80 feet tall. You yeah. go up to the northern part of the state, they're 80 by 80. Yeah, and so they're, they're huge metal structures. You're like, how did these get out? And you think, well, Endow must have put them out. But, I mean, it, it was in cooperation with Endow. And have, 
I'm sure you've been out on those Gilbert oh, yeah. projects and put them yeah. together. That, that is not easy work. I did yeah. one with the Mildator Foundation up by the Kirch area, and I couldn't walk straight for a week afterwards, <laughs> man. Lifting all that metal and working with all those guys. I mean, like, there's some guys at Woods and Water that have deep pockets, right? Yeah. And there's other guys that don't have deep pockets, but if you've got time and a good back, man, we, they need that just as much. And if you don't got time, you don't got money and a good back, there's always a political side, right, Mike? What can yeah. you do with that? Well, it, it's on the political side, it's more documentation. Yeah. Just to watch. I mean, it'd be nice if you had somebody just going up there and set up a camera. And even, you know, we do casinos down here, time lapse. Yeah. You watch how fast they put a 25 story high rise at. Well, it would be great to be able to have a time lapse of watch where you just got the rock, the ground right there. Boy, helicopter starts bringing materials in, guys start spreading it out. You know, putting all that stuff in. At the end of the day, you've got a guy in there spraying it. You know, it's a camouflage color, yeah. and it's it's it, it's awesome to see. But until you actually get up there and see that, it's kind of hard to appreciate because out of sight, out of mind. That's yeah. human nature. But if you have some of the older guys that maybe is there in their youth or whatever didn't get to participate mm-hmm. in that, they're like, man, it sounds interesting. Even if they came up and just you know, stuck around the water jug and told the guys, hey, thanks for doing what you're doing. I mean, as simple as that. Tell them there's another secret benefit to that about the Keep Hitman fund. So, so um, let me go before that. Okay, go ahead. When, when at the turn of the century, the 19th century, a lot of our uh, wildlife was start, starting to be extirpated. And sports, when we had, you had market sales. You had market hunters that would hunt just for the market and sell them. Well, it got so bad that they had to get a group together to, to create a bill in Congress called the uh, Pittman Roberts Act. What do you mean by bad? Uh, the, the wildlife numbers, the populations. Like they're on the brink of extinction. Some of, um, some of them were, were extremely close. You look at where your antelope are at today. I mean, a good one is, is your buffalo, your bison. Okay, um, very few states have hunts. There are hunts for those. Um, but again, it hasn't come, the bison have rebounded, but not like some of the other ones. Um, your deer, your elk, uh, a lot of those numbers, your bears, uh, and stuff like that. So uh, what, the, what the Pittman-Robertson did is says, okay, look, we, we've looked at some areas that need some help. How do we help it? Well, money's one way to help it. We need to have some funds to do stuff, whether it's habitat restoration, whether it's a water development, whatever it is, there has to be money. So the sportsmen's got together and said, okay, let's just use an example of Winchester. Winchester, when you go build your ammo, mark an 11% markup on that before it ever ships. So what was happening is Winchester manufacturing was writing a check to the government for 11% of the cost of that product. And that, that money went to go fund uh, Porky Pakistan, right? Yeah. Well, if... No, that, tell me where the yeah. extra money went. So, so, so that, that money went into creating lands, yeah. whether, it's, whether it's wetlands, um, but habitat restorations, um, the management of data. Yeah. We've got to have a baseline. How bad is it? We've got to come together. Okay, how do we bring them back? Yeah, but they put that money, they put the precedent that like, we're going to get money, but it goes back to what we want it to go to. Uh, yeah, yes, it does. What it does is it goes into a great big fund, and it's a big, huge pot. Now, you've got 50 states that contribute to that. 
But before I go to that, I, I'd like it to be known that the state of Ohio, for example, had no deer hunt for 43 years. 43, 43 years. years because their deer population was so low. They must have had some good hunters back then. There was, there was plentiful, but there's where the markets. It's like, okay, you know, like it's an endless supply. No, it's not an endless supply. You still have to have recruitment and everything else with that. So with that being said, you've got, all this goes in the pot. You've got 50 states. And the way that Congress came up is, okay, we've got this pot of money. How much do we give Nevada? How much do we give Idaho? How much do we give Utah? And the discussion around the table is, well, let's base it on how many hunters are in that state. Because those hunters are the ones buying that ammo. Yeah. Those hunters are the ones that are buying those firearms. And this is in 1937, by the way. And so they said, okay, so it's predicated on hunting licenses purchased, mm-hmm. tags, and there's a formula. I don't know the exact formula, but if Nevada gets a percentage of that pot based on how many sportsmen are in that state. Yeah. For example, Texas is going to get way more than Rhode Island is going to get. Okay, so so it's based um, on what we perceive is proportionally. Um, I, to my knowledge, it hasn't been changed, but in the 60s you had the Johnson-Dingle Act that came in because it brought the fishermen on board Yeah. for the fishing and stuff like that. So, um, so the Johnson-Dingle Act? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, don't quote me, I want to say it was like 1963, 64, something like that. Yeah. But the key pivot, I mean, excuse me, the pivot Robertson, yeah was Nevada Senator Keith Pittman. So uh, so he got together, and the two of them co-sponsored that bill, and it passed, and it went into effect in 1937. And it's been the model of conservation ever since. So uh, for the last three quarters plus of a century, sportsmen have been footing the bill for conservation acts. Uh, whether it's, it's to help the wildlife, the management, and even some of the public lands, you know, for habitat restoration and stuff. It's really true when we say, you know, we love our we love our wildlife, we put our money where our mouth is. Yes. Well, the other yes. thing is, so there's... Ryan a, really does, because he misses so many yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of ammo to get a couple of us. So. Um, one of the other things about the Pittman-Robertson Act is, is the way the money's allocated is there's another important aspect I think if we often overlook and it's a really easy aspect and it's volunteer hours mm-hmm. so volunteer hours is we whether it's a big home fraternity or or when or whoever goes out and does a project for every volunteer hour we get we log those hours those hours go into a pot and we get money back to our state wildlife groups in that pot and sure. it's become even easier now with some of the things like Endow has a volunteer thing that you can get on your phone yeah. And a lot of volunteer hours. So if you're up and you happen to run yeah, across, it's on the internet. It's on the internet. So yeah, we we want to get an app because it make it a lot easier. But you can basically track all your mileage from your house. You go up and check. Let's just say you're out hunting and you find a guzzler and you, and you go and say, hey, this guzzler is halfway empty or it's got four foot of water. You put in your it. arm in it. And yeah, how it goes up on take a arm. picture of it. You post it to it and say, hey, I was out there. It took me six hours to drive out there. Here's how many miles I went. And for every bit of that, you get credit for it. And it could be for activities you're already doing. So we're out in the field hunting. Mm-hmm. We come across one of the wind breakers up there that we've done. And you say, hey, you know, this fence is broke down over here. Or it could be as simple as, hey, everything looks great. 
And I had two people that just went and did that. I get the hours for both guys, the travel time, all that. And that all goes to our state. And then when our state goes and puts their hand out for those Pittman-Robertson funds, those are partially based labor on hours, those absolutely. labor hours. Yeah. And so when we're talking about Ron and I have a big problem. We we're on the board of win and we go out and do projects and we don't mind doing the back breaking work where we have a problem is, is we don't have time to sit down and take the pictures. Right. And so when it goes to, it's not good at multitasking. Yeah. When it, when it, when it goes, <laughs> I can only hammer. I can't hammer and take a picture. Exactly. <laughs> when it goes to us going to try and get sponsors for our banquet or sponsors for a project, the first thing they're going to ask us is, well, what do you guys do? And we can tell them, yeah, we did this and that. But if you have pictures to show them, hey, oh, absolutely. this is the improvements we've made here and here and here, those things all have a big impact just into getting your funding from the private private sector. Yeah. And on top of that, we get the bonus of the state gets money for us going out and doing all these things. Yeah, we get a double dip big time. So if you're sitting next to the truck and saying, hey, guys, you're doing a good job, we're getting paid for that. Can we yeah. talk about one of our other conservation heroes that does that all the time? He's tanking all there. We got two of them. We got Robert Gaudet. Yes. We got Mike Guest. They can't swing a hammer, but they're up at every single project, just sitting in their lawn chairs, telling us we're doing a good job or telling us we're not doing a good yeah, job. Just don't forget the ranch. Don't forget the ranch. <laughs> You'll be okay. Yeah. Now, Robert Gaudet does it in a different way, too. He's not only at projects, but Robert Gaudet is a voice. But when I mean a voice, if you don't agree with something, he'll be at the meeting hollering. Have you, have you heard of Robert Goddard? His voice will carry across the Grand Canyon. <laughs> well, and, and Mike's and Mike's one of those uh, those ones too that is you know he kind of puts his money where his mouth is, not only in the, the financial part, but being president of uh, I guess Las Vegas Woods and Water, and he's also on the Citizens Advisory Board for for wildlife yes. for Clark County. And one of the things that I know that Mike preaches, and I, I know we all fall short of it, I fall short of it. Um, is we need to start sportsmen turning up to these meetings because oftentimes our voice is drowned out by the anti-hunter voice because... At the conservation the, At the meetings because yeah. they're going to come and fight against everything. And we don't have nearly the power we should fighting for what we want. And it's a very it's vocal group. It's, it's an against group. Talk about that little mic. So, uh, no, he hit, he hit on a key thing and, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm in my uh, fourth term of doing this, 12 years, and it kind of irks me to, I see all these big events that we do, the functions and stuff like that, but when it comes time to set the quota for amount of deer, I would think with the amount of deer, many deer hunters as we had, we had 349,000 applications for big game tags. 349,000. Now, we average about 4.5 applications per applicant. Mm-hmm. As far as applicants go, we had about 80,000 applicants. But when you look out in the audience when we're discussing how many tags should be appropriated for these uh, areas, sportsmen are hard to find. Well, and I think it's it's well, everywhere, they, really, because I, I, yeah. I have the issue with, so I serve on the town board. And I have issues. Everybody's willing to talk behind closed doors. But as soon as it's time to get into the public and, and say your piece, nobody shows up. So what happens is if you've got, for me, I'm a fairly conservative voice. So my community is fairly conservative. But there's issues that they want me to fight for. They'll come and, 
and they'll bend my ear in the grocery store, every, everywhere around town. Yeah. But when it's time to show up for that meeting, here I am standing as a lone voice. I think you probably feel the same way sometimes. Yes. You're, you got all these guys that are in your ear, we need to fight for this, we need to fight for that. But really when it's time to show up, they don't show up to fight. So when you stand up and you have maybe a member that's not so pro-hunting, then you stand up and say, well, this is what the people want. And they're saying, well, how come you're the only one here? And there's 20 other people out here saying different. So right. we've got to give you the tools to be able to fight for what we need. And it, it comes down to the manpower. But I, I think it, sometimes, like like me, I get a little disillusioned. Like, it doesn't matter if I show up. They're not going to listen to me anyways. I mean, do they listen when, when that voice shows up and they're rowdy and loud? Well, that's a, that's a good point. And, and the way technology is today... What I tell people is, yeah, you're right. You, you can run into somebody and they'll say, hey, you know, do we get to hunt swans down here in the southern part of the state yet? I'm like, well, you know, it's easy to talk about it. Can you send me an email and I'll read it into the record? Guess how many emails I get? I get a lot of lip service, but I don't get a whole lot of emails. But I understand where their passion is coming from. hunters don't know how to write. I know. Well, I know. But they can sure fill out for a big game that case you that. Well, I think, I think, too, is I think it's hard for some people to attach their name yeah. to something like that because they think if I go up and, and we talk, start talking about wild game commissions and stuff like that, I'm going up against the state and so there's still that in the back of their mind, okay, so they're just going to take my name out of the hat next time I go to put a tag. And, and I, the way the system is now, I think back in the day there certainly was some room to do some of that. Yeah. It's with the new system, as much as I hate the new system and as cumbersome as it can be, I think it's eliminated a lot of that. And it's taken the ability to do a lot of that out, with the exception of some of the, the premium tags, the governor's tags and stuff like that, that we use specifically to raise money for, for Endow. I know when did our, our mule deer went for 174, I think, last year or something like that. 75. Yeah. And, and so that 175,000, when didn't see a penny of that 175,000? Every bit of that money went back into conservation and went into, into the endowed program. Into the heritage fund. Into the heritage fund. That's right. Yeah, which, it's a heritage tag. And so, so that heritage fund, we can do some, some great projects with this heritage fund money that really do some great things for conservation. And that's all through the sale of those specialty tags. Yes. yes. I want to step back that's, that's a good point. and have Mike talk about uh, the emails and what effect that does on putting those, those notes in the meeting. Who sees those notes when you put them in there? So if an, if an email comes in um, to say Paul Dixon, our chairman, who just got reappointed, I've been the temporary chairman. Yeah. So if I get, if I'm the chairman acting as a chairman and I get that, I send it into the county uh, to Darlene, and she will send it out to the whole group, or I can send it out to the whole, all seven members, and so all seven members would see it, and then I say, hey, um, we have a line item on our agenda that says correspondences. Yeah. Now, during that, I could get up and say, I got a phone call from somebody, I got this, or somebody asked me to speak on this. Like anything else, if you have it in writing, it carries a hundred times more weight. And say, yeah, I ran into a guy the other day. He thinks we should uh, uh, change the uh, quote on quell. And I say to him, why? Because we didn't get any. I said, then it solved itself. <laughs> close, why would you cut it down that. when you're not getting any to start with? And it, it, But it leads into a discussion of yeah. educating sports. Of how do these things really work? Most people don't know what quells. Lifespan's only 18 months. 
two years, maybe. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing is, I don't think people realize it. So there's levels. So government's got levels. Every, yes. Everywhere's got levels. So uh, and, and my understanding is you're the same as, as some of our town boards. Is it's an advisory board. It's an advisory commission. So that advisory board of the county commission, if they send something forward to the county commission and the commissioners are going to look at that item, they're going to look at the item they're going to say, well, this is what the board said. And a lot of times some of the commissioners are pretty good with following board recommendations. Some, not so much sometimes. But if you have the weight of bringing 35 letters or 35 emails yeah. and sitting on a county commissioner's desk, and there's solid proof, this isn't the board's want and desire. This is the community's wants and desires. So as an advisory board, you, you can go forward with a lot of suggestions, but your hands are kind of, like, kind of they're, they're handcuffed a little bit. Yeah. But you need to, we need to provide as advisory boards as much as we can to the county commissioners. Yeah. So it's an easy decision for them to make to, okay, we need to, we need to change the trapping rules in Clark County to make them a little looser because they're far too restrictive. Well, why? Well, here's the deal. So these trappers are saying that they can't trap anymore and they're seeing the coyotes come into neighborhoods and they're getting calls from so-and-so. Yeah. And those coyotes are never going to leave again because now they found freedom. They found food everywhere they go. They found food and happiness. So, they found the strip. Yeah. They're, not, they're not going back home. So, so how, do, how do we solve that? Well, the right way to solve it is we go back to trapping the way we were trapping. And I'm not saying we did everything perfect in the trapping community, but I think we're starting to see more and more wildlife encroachment on the urban area. So that urban wildlife interface is being, it's become a little bit more cumbersome for our county commissioners. Yeah. And so the... the the fix is either animal control goes and euthanizes these animals, or the trappers that are paying for a license to go trap these animals can trap them again, and then we bring more trappers in and more control, and we increase habitat for animals because those trapping licenses are doing the same thing the hunting and fishing licenses are doing. They're going back into that conservation thing, and it's pretty tightly regulated. Let's, this uh, let's talk about that subject okay, a little ahead. bit more. I um, like some of the because I've been on the, the cap for twelve years, I, I saw it and I, I started documenting what was really happening from year to year to year and I'm a data guy. And I took all of this data, I took newspaper articles, I took uh, um, I took things that were uh, newscasts from the T V stations. So that it's not Mike Reese coming up with these, this is where I'm pulling it from. And I wrote a white paper called Who Let the Dogs Out? Because a lot of people that have been here for 20, 30, 40 years are going, we have never seen the amount of coyotes in our community that we have today. Yeah. So the normal, natural thing, well, God, they were here first. No, there was no coyotes here. This was a desolate valley. Uh, there was nothing to eat. So, But with that, with settlement, you get... You learn how to manage your water supply. You learn how to manage your land. You start to do the cultivation. You start putting in uh, parts uh, with ponds. You parts with ponds. You put. You got. Oh, we got golf courses now. Oh my God. Well, we got to have a couple water holes on a golf course. We so, have a nice green grass. Too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, so to make a long story short, by nature, when the, when the coyotes have their pups, they will stay as a family unit for a certain period of time. Then when the alpha male and female start to go back into heat, they kind of kick the pups out of the house. We've all been kicked out of the house. We had to go out and find our own livelihood and our own place to live and stuff now. So so by nature, 
a coyote is sent out on a walkabout. So as he's out walking, man, he finds a golf course. It's got some water. It's got some you know rabbits around it. Hey, I found my paradise. Um, why do I need to go back there? So they basically set up shop. So what happened is, on September 21st, 2011, the State Wildlife Commission voted to change the setbacks. How far can you? How far do you have to be from setting a trap? It used to be it was 200 feet from knock by dwelling. Okay, so in that one meeting, it went from 200 feet to a half a mile. So what would happen is on the outskirts of town, if you had, if you were a resident on the outskirts of town and you had chickens or this or that, or, and you started to have a coyote problem, a trapper could legally come over to your house, offer up a service of, okay, I'll trap out these nuisance ones that, you know, hey, I lost my cat, I lost my dog. Mm -hmm. Because of that regulation changing, and if they got, if they set a trap right by the close proximity to where the coyotes are coming in, they could get a citation for that. And again, just like your driving license, if you get 70 demerit points, you lose your driver's license. Well, in their world, you lose your hunting and fishing right, uh, rights up to five years. That's so big. most of the trappers said, okay, I got the message. You want me to leave? I'll leave. I just... I'll pack my stuff and I'll go. So the trappers that were in the Las Vegas Valley today now trap in Pahrump, Lincoln County, Overton. Uh, Overton, because they got kicked out of Las Vegas Valley. Coincidentally, that went into effect in 2012. For, so for the trapping season in 2012, starting in January, February, March, we had 11 schools on lockdown in Clark County. Now, this is by, uh, the, the lockdowns are reported by the news agency, so I pulled all of those off. One, there was four schools because of one coyote sighting, and Metro actually got called out, and Metro euthanized a coyote because it had left the school property, was turning around because so much traffic started to go back on, and the police officer euthanized it and caught all the hell for it. You can't take a transplant a rabies vector species into another area. So they will not. And I noticed that you mentioned earlier, you get animal control. That's a, that's a misnomer because animal control has no jurisdiction over wildlife. Yes. Okay? So if it's a pet dog, if it's a pet cat, a stray cat, they come take it. If it's a coyote, even though it's a canine species, it is considered a wildlife. Yeah, and Endow doesn't want to go yeah. and deal with so, it. So we as residents got caught in the middle. The trappers left. There's no wall or fence set up anymore. So Endow hired a guy, his name was Joshua Serta, to come to work for Endow. His basic job was that he was a public educator, but what his job was was to answer the telephone for coyote complaints. Log it, see what would happen. Okay, so let me make sure I got my dates right. 1817. In 2016, the first year, he logged 975 calls. In, in, a, in a year. That was what, 2017? 16. Okay. Five years. So, so the following year, um, they logged 1,235. What increase is that? That's like a... It's about almost a 25% increase. Okay? 
So then what happened in 2018 man, is, dogs, man. Yeah. So in 2018, the calls escalated to 1,661 calls. Okay, now, let me put a disclaimer in there. That's how many phone calls a guy had to answer. What we don't know is, did he answer five calls for the same coyote? Because it's going from neighborhood to neighborhood. I mean, you know, who knows? The point is, there was a lot of them out there. And now, Joshua Serta started logging it month by month. So in the month of June of 2018, he got 221 calls. So when you think about a four week in a month, and you look at that, it came out to about one every 40 minutes. Isn't there some place in California where they're suing the government for not being yes. so proactive yes. about the coyotes? Yes. So uh, that's a good point to Coming bring up. Coming to Las Vegas. Because um, uh, Wildlife Services, who is basically a predator control government agency, uh, the gentleman that was there, um, retired, the new Wildlife uh, Services director is a gentleman by the name of Mark Ono. Okay? Mark Ono was a wildlife director in California. So he got to see how the coyotes over a 20 year period, how they manifested, what happened. You had long, you had, you had all of these different municipalities start, uh, start implementing money for the managing and euthanizing of coyotes because they were just out of control. How do they euthanize in a public area? Um, you can you can tranquilize it and then strength. There, there's a lot of different. Okay, so they use tranquilizers, sedatives rather than firearms. I, that because I'm not there, okay. I can't answer. But I I know like Metro uh-huh. Metro didn't use a tranquilizer. Yeah, they use it. They use a firearm. It's probably one yeah. of the hundreds so, of anyways. He's like I don't taste So now we're we're paying a government agency, yeah, to do what people were paying us. Hey, Brian, to the government do. does it better, man. Well, yeah, they always do. The government does everything better. Just go to the DMV to find out how great the government does everything. So, guys are paying $75 a year, somewhere around there. It's 72, whatever it is, but it's somewhere around that number to track. Well, they also, don't forget, they also pay $5 for the tech, for the seating of every bobcat they get. Yes, and and on top of their. And if with the new tag ordinance, they also can have to pay for a tag for every single trap they set as yes, well. at five bucks. So so now you got a trapper that's a couple hundred dollars into it a year. And, and, that's cheap be, and, and that's before he buys any of his equipment. Traps, right? bait. And, and so now they were, they were reducing the number of, of nuisance calls we were getting. They are reducing the number of pets we were losing. And, and the argument that I know that the anti-trapping community was using is, oh, they're killing our dogs. You know, we're getting our dogs are getting caught in these traps and these trappers, they don't care about anything. Well, trappers are just like any other group. There's obviously going to be some bad guys with it. And that's just... And, and Same with the general public. The game wardens do a very good job of trying to catch those and weed yeah. those guys out pretty quick. It's easier to catch the trappers than a poacher. Yes, because the yeah. trappers, their traps are set and you go pick it up now and there's a tag attached to it and it leads you right to who owns yeah. that, that trap. So we've... What these trappers were doing is they were going, they're not going to set it right up next to a neighborhood because they know that they're going to have somebody's dog. Well, even before, when they were only 200 feet away or 200 yards away, they knew that if they set it too close to a neighborhood, they were going to catch somebody's dog. 
The last thing these trappers want to do is catch somebody's family pet. They want to go as far away from the city as they can get. These animals that were that they're trying to trap, they they don't want to be in the shadows. They want to be hiding out. So they're going to find these places that are on the edge of the city, but outside that normal thoroughfare for everybody else, because that's where the animals are going to be. So what's happened is we've taken that buffer zone that we normally would have had, where we would have had trappers in, and then you had a little bit of a buffer, and then you had the city, because the trappers were taking those animals in between. For 40 years. We've never For 40 had years. And then now you've eliminated that. Basically, it was a wall that these trappers yeah. were putting up. And so it's just like any other wall. It's not going to stop everyone from getting in, but it was stopping a significant number of them from getting in. And then these guys... And I think, too, they have to pay tax on any of these pelts that they sell. So when they go to these things and they sell them, they're taxed on that as well. So there's multiple income streams from the state that we're losing out by pushing trappers out and not allowing them to do their to, – to do what they're – it's their sport for them. I mean, it's no different than the hunters. We get out there and we're just – we're limiting it to a season, whether it's ducks or whatever. We're limited to a season – because that's when the ducks are in and we're federally mandated on ducks. So how many days we're allowed to hunt and this and that. They have a very limited season. It's only a couple month period that they're allowed to even travel. Right now, right now the longest season that we have is 120 days. There are some years that they'll put it down to like 108, maybe even down to 90. And it's, it's predicated on what the uh, amount of harvest has been the previous three years. So when you get into the true definition of sustainability... You're doing the exact same thing for year after year after year, and you still harvest the same amount of numbers. You're not you're not affecting the population of that. Exactly. That's the truest way to find out if you're having an effect on it. And the predators aren't like I mean, rabbits have predators to, to go after. Yeah. Deer and elk and all those they all have a predator to come after. These apex predators, that's it. You know, man, man if he's allowed to do exactly. that. Exactly. So, so you have to have that ability to thin some of these populations, whether it's with a predator hunting program or a trapping yeah. program. One of the two has to be in place to control these populations so we can actually manage the big game populations, the small game, the upland yeah. birds, the waterfowl. All that is predicated on how well we manage those predators. Now, well, you guys, you, well, yeah, let right. me put, put, plug this in with you guys. You guys go and do uh, the duck houses, the... Yeah, when we did a bunch okay. of goose boxes. What's your reason for putting it three, four, or five feet high off the ground? Them old raccoons can't get up there. Predators. The other thing is snakes, and so that's another one that we have. Yeah. Snakes will get, actually get up and pull the eggs out of some old boxes. And right. so there's specific things you have to do to avoid that. Yeah. And the coyotes, if they see a nest full of eggs, guess what they're feasting on? Coyote is one of the most adaptable animal that there is. I was out at yeah. Sunnyside like a... Probably like three weeks ago, and it was all frozen up up there. Yeah. And I'm walking out there, I'm on Abbas McGill, and uh, I was trying to shoot a hole. And I, all of a sudden, I look out on the ice, and there's a coyote in the middle of the lake running on the ice, trying to catch some of those ducks. He got to them first. But hey, I, I want to go back a little bit. Go ahead. Not, it, looking back at, would you say it started to 2012? 2012 was, in, was when the regulations got changed. When, that's when they started changing. Mm-hmm. If, if, if at that commission meeting, we would have had a strong showing. Do you think it would have made a difference? Well, here's that's a good point. Um, what I personally went on the record with was the fact that part of on Mount Charleston, let's take that for an example, Max Canyon. Okay, they talked about it and they go, well, you know what, we want to outlaw Max Canyon because the public uses it. 
what happened is the trappers came to the table and says, you know, as you look at Max Canyon from the time you leave the highway to the end of the road, there's a section of that road that's general public because they don't have a vehicle to get down and get back up. So they made a, a, a concession, if you will, that says, we agree that from this point to this point, you should probably have a restriction in it because John Q. Public does use that quite a bit. But from this one to this one, no. The Wildlife Commission basically said this is a uh, highly congested area, so in the name of safety, we're going to make it go all the way to the end of the road. So the trappers had to stay out. The following weekend, Metro had the largest marijuana drug bust in the history of the state on the same road that the trappers were telling them, no, there is nobody that goes down here. If you're going to put a marijuana grow farm in there, are you going to put it up where it's a highly congested area? No, you're not. <laughs> if you are, you're so, doing it for very long. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so they say they found that, they caught that. Mm-hmm. But why did they find that? Trapper turned it in. Really? So, so you, you trappers are out there. They're out there probably more on a continual basis than anybody else. They see the change in landscape. They see who's, who's coming out there, what's going on. They're our best caretaker out in the field. They can tell us about habitat. Oh, yeah, that rainstorm that came through, man, it really washed this out or that out or whatever. Or no, it really didn't do a whole lot of damage. We needed that water. If you want to know what's going on in the habitat, talk to a trapper. Yeah. Well, they, it's, they have to. A trapper, as a big game hunter or a waterfowl hunter, you can kind of put yourself in an area and you can still harvest and it may not be the biggest buck in the world, but you can still get a buck mm-hmm. with a trapper. If you are not in the ideal place with an ideal set, you're catching nothing. Yeah. And yeah. so they, they're very in tune with the land and the changes of the yeah. land and the changes of the habitat. And I think when we limit the ability for them to go out and do their, their work, then we just, we limit the habitat for everybody. So they're going to be the one, first ones to come tell us, Hey, this is an issue, and we're starting to have an issue here. Maybe we have an invasive species that's starting to move in as yeah. far as, as a biodiversity thing. And so they can say, hey, I saw tamarisk out here for the first time. I've never seen it before. And they're going to get a hold of their wild state wildlife guys and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing out here. Right. And we can eradicate those things before they become a long-term problem. So, No, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's back to that point. I, I think part of conservation, it doesn't have to be swinging a hammer. It doesn't have to be uh, opening your pockets. It could be just showing up these meetings and yeah. expressing your opinion. And uh, when it comes to, like, making those emails, they don't have to be, like, fantastically written, right? They can no. be like, I think we should be allowed to trap this pass. These are my three bullet points. Why? Yeah. There's a lot of dogs. There's not, there's not good access for the public. And I have to hike in most of the places. And here's the pictures with the proof. And that's all you have to have. You know, that's a good point. Give you give an example. Um, you guys been up into Caliani down through the gorge? Yes. Okay. You that's mean a, down towards Elgin? Yeah. I love that drive, man. Look how many beefers are down there destructing that. Oh, but it's fine. illegal. It's illegal to drive beavers down in there because of the setback from the highway. I talked to a game warden. He said you could do it as long as you're 100 feet away from the road. And I was like, how? How, how, how would you do it in that particular? Especially case, since you know? the river's yeah. 25 feet from the road most of the places. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is it 100 feet across? Exactly. And, and that's the 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 one thing too is you go to these meetings and and we all get passionate. So we're all we all have passion about what we do. And I think sometimes what happens when you get in these memes, you get 
those guys that are maybe just a little overpassionate. Yeah. And, and what happens is when, when we get into a screaming and yelling match with somebody that we may not agree with, we just lost all of our all of our cards. So I disagree. It, I think screaming you gotta do it sometimes. No, but well, here's what a reason, happens. There's a reason a marine and those guys carry a grenade once in a while. Yeah, but, <laughs> but what happens is as a general rule when we start screaming about stuff and making yeah. things personal, people just shut it, shut it off and they shut you down and they don't hear it. So if you have that a lot of the board is pretty wildlife friendly and, and pretty outdoor friendly. But you're gonna have those members that maybe aren't as friendly with that alternative. With the standard method of accumulation cannot be a screen. Exactly. I, I agree hundred ten. You have to you have to be willing to stop, step back and listen. And if it if it gets to the point where you have to be a little fiery and passionate, by all means be a little fiery and passionate. But by all means don't start with just pointing fingers and jumping right down somebody's throat. And especially we got to realize that the guys on this uh, this cab and even our county commissioners, as much as I disagree with them a lot of times, is, man, they have a tough job to do, and, and they're trying to do the best. So they're actually, I'm going to correct you, they're not a county commissioner, they're a state commissioner. State commissioner. On the state wildlife commission. So, so I don't want somebody that's reading it thinking it's, hey, I'm going to call my councilman up and this and that. No, yeah. it's not. It's a state wildlife but, but so, But these guys all, they're trying to do the right thing, and, yeah. and, and in their mind they think they're doing the right thing. and. We're generally not going to fix things by just screaming and having screaming matches. It takes a, a true conversation and point out the, the valid points that you have. And if you can put those in a, in a good way, you're going to get people to listen to you. Yeah. And it may not be, you know, it may not change that person's mind, but they may look a little bit different or they may just, okay, I'll let this one go through and then we'll let it go to the next level. And sometimes that's all we got to do is get it to that next level. But just getting it past the cab is not going to get it passed. Yeah. So once it goes to the state, we need to be just as active with the state and make sure that we don't those emails, those just phone calls, just be a squeaky wheel, right? Yeah. Like we had, we had something that was really bad that was about to happen a while back. We all the hunters got in and made an uproar about it and changed it. What was that? Well, guess, what? Like well, the, there's been a couple of them. There's been optics. There's been caliber restrictions. Um, some of those things that were what I deem is ludicrous on some of them. Um, there are some of those bills that were coming up and going, well, what's the reason for this? What's, and I think that's where a lot of people, the yelling and screaming comes in because they just hear about something, whether it's at a picnic or whatever, and they find out about it and they want to go and they're like, oh, but once they, like he's saying, once you find the true history and the, and the uh, background of that, they're kind of like, well, okay, I can see where, yeah. But when you hear that headline, and that's what newspapers does, is that headline, you know, deer population declining. Yeah, we're on a 30-year decline, guys, but why? Yeah. Um, and it's it's made to, those headlines, people didn't realize, is they're made to induce emotion. Oh. So so you're just buying it. Quick bait. Hook, line, and sinker. We, we, we know one particular individual that, I know you've heard the lecture a hundred times about hunting doe in the state of Nevada. Oh, yeah. And, and so... And I happen to agree with him. But and, and see, so he's very passionate, and I think sometimes the reason he doesn't get listened to so much is because it starts out at level 9.7, and it goes to level 12. So That's one of my favorite people in the world. It is. He's a great guy. I, mean, yeah. I love a guy to death, yeah. but man... He, he gets on that, that path, and it's just something he's passionate about. Sometimes we we pull the reins back on passion just a little bit, 
people yeah. agree with you. Yeah. And, and they'll tell you agree with you, but you're being so loud that you don't even hear that they well, agree with you sometimes, too. So I, I appreciate him being loud about it because when you look at the big picture, 1988, we had 260,000 deer. Today, we're less than 90,000. And you've got an agency that wants to still have a doe hunt. How can you have recruitment? This is their thinking, is how can you have recruitment if you're taking out the does, the females? Well, and, and the other thing is... It, it, in his world, it's ludicrous. So as more ludicrous as it comes to him, his voice goes up. Exactly. And, and, and it's temper. But the thing is, so we're, we're down, I mean, what, from 200,000 to 80,000. And people still are sitting there at the cab board saying, we need to increase the numbers of harvests. Yeah, and and it's because as we all as hunters we all want a tag, right? Now we I'd love to have a tag every single year. It'd be great. Absolutely, you can go ahead and make a complaint, Brian. No, no, and it's <laughs> how long has it been? It's been six years since I've drawn a tag, and I've been for just about everything. Five. So oh, Brian's got you. Oh, he does. He does. But at the, I draw one every year. At the same point, I might be able to get ten tags this year. But in two years, I'm not going to be able to get any tags because yeah. there's not going to be anything. Or I can get a tag, and there's no way I'm going to harvest. And my family has um, some land in California, and you want to see what the failure of managing wildlife has done. Full-grown deer are the size of a dog. Yeah. And that's a full-grown deer. I'm not talking that's, you know, a fawn. That's a full-grown, mature deer. What's happened is they've over-restricted those areas, there's no forage for these deer to get, the deer get, there's no food sources, there's no water for them to get, so naturally their their natural evolution standard is going to be, I can't yeah. grow as big. Or, or while the horses are in that same boat. You know, you take a majestic Mustang, that is something to look at, but you go look at what we perceive as a majestic Mustang today in an area that's got no habitat. It is skeleton bones. It is sick days. I, I, I can't believe that we would let that happen. It's the only big game animal we don't manage. I know. It's the feds that have to manage it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just nuts. Hey, Mike, I wanted you to talk a little bit. I, I called you at the beginning of the podcast, the puppet master, because you do a lot of lobbying. Um, when these bills come up and they want to make a change and they're educated, what what gives you the power to go in and talk to our our congressman to, to make those changes. I, I know I've talked to you about it on the phone a little bit. I'd like you to okay. kind of elaborate on that. Uh, so, so part of that is I am, uh, for the record, I am the president of Southern Nevada Coalition for Wildlife. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's the politics side of it. Yeah. And the reason uh, we're on the politics side is because I'll give you a brief example. Endow gets to set the quota for deer. Mm-hmm. The legislature tells Endow, you can have a deer hunt. You're the professional, you manage it how you see fit. So it's the legislators that actually, bottom line, manage our wildlife. But our legislators meet 120 days every other year, and they don't have time to be brought up to speed what's the current status, what's the current conditions of our, our stuff. So what happens is bills get introduced because if you can't get traction at the State Wildlife Commission level, you go to their boss. Like, you have a complaint? Let me talk to your supervisor. Talk to your manager. Yeah. yeah. So in this world, you're going to go talk to a state legislator, whether it's a senator or a subject person. doesn't matter. It depends on the bill. And so 
um, that's where you would go in and, and try to educate. So as a Southern Nevada Coalition for Wildlife, what we do is we go out during election time and we interview senators and assembly people, nonpartisan. doesn't matter if it's Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. Managing wildlife should not be a political issue. Okay, it shouldn't be a Democratic or Republican issue. It's all of our wildlife, yeah. so we should all be together with it. With that being said, a lot of them don't know, well, hey, in 1964 we had 2,500 bighorn sheep. Fraternity started and said, ah, you know what, we want to we build that. We, wanna, we should have more than that. Because back at the turn of the century and, and before, there used to be almost every mountain range in the state had sheep on it. Yeah. We don't today. The question always comes up, why? Well, God, I mean, we're the driest state in the United States. Well, we've got to have water. Okay. So when a bill comes up that says, hey, in order for you to go do a guzzler, you have to go talk to the water engineer and get a permit for that. So what happens is in wildlife management, you get a ton of red tape coming down. You have the possibility for that. But if you can go educate them on, on what's going on, what's the back history, to kind of predict what you think the future is going to be if that bill passes. And my approach is when I go in and I, and I lobby somebody, I don't care whether they're Democrat or Republican, if you're sick and you have a problem and you go to a doctor, he writes you a prescription. Yeah. Okay? And he'll say, hey, take this every day for 10 days, and if it doesn't fix it, come back and see me. Well, at the end of 10 days, you don't keep taking that same medication because eventually what cured you could actually harm you. In my world, wildlife management, there's a lot that follows the same route there. We don't ever put any sunset clauses in. So when a bill comes up that says, hey, we want to do this trapping, for example, okay? I was on the other side of that. I'm not a trapper. Everybody thought I was. I just educated on what trappers do. But I appreciated the fact that those trappers were helping to manage the survival rates of my fawns, my calves, yeah. my upland game. Because without trappers, tell me who's going to manage an apex predator like you talked about. There isn't anybody. Yeah. So therefore, when the legislature, like this last session, wanted to outlaw coyote collar contests. Now, what that, to me, my, my opinion of that came down to, right now, we all have to social distance. We don't like it, but we have to. To me, it was the legislature telling us how and when we can socialize if we want to. Coyote contest is no different than a bunch of guys getting together. They're going to go out. There's no guarantee you're going to get any. There's no guarantee how many you're going to get. But it's like going around and playing golf. Hey, we're going to play a dollar a front nine, dollar back nine, two dollars for overall. It, it's a wager. It's it's a challenge. It's competition. We've had competition in our legs since the starting of time. Why do you think they call us sportsmen? It is a sport. It's a hobby. It's a sport. So we refer to ourselves as sportsmen. So once the legislature will understand what role we pay, play, and that we actually pay for the management of that, John Q. Public is entitled to that. They're entitled to their say because they have the wildlife belong to them. What they don't understand is, let's take deer for example. Well, all of our big game species, we never try to give out more than about 10% of the population in tags. 
And in that, as you guys know, you're not always successful. No. The success rate is somewhere lower than 50%. So for the 10% for the 10% uh, of tags, only about 5% of them are going to be harvested. Most politicians don't know that. They don't get, they don't know the they don't know uh, the population, they don't know the past history. We go out and interview them before they get elected, and they'll say, okay, I said, here's Here's where we are. You don't have a whole lot of time, but if a bill comes up and you want your expert witness, just like an attorney would call in to court, mm -hmm. call us. We have guys that are waterfowlers. We have guys that are trappers. We have guys that are sheep guys. That's all they do, um, sheep. We've got you know, mule deer and stuff. So a lot of us have gotten decades worth of experience doing that. So we'll go in and educate them and, and show them where can you find the statistics that we're telling you right now? And one of the things... So you point them in the right direction to yeah, educate the yeah. We're not, we're not telling, hey, you need to vote on this or, or no, no, no. You also it's, tell a public opinion on the matter too, correct? Yeah, the public opinion is huge because, because of running a Facebook page, mm -hmm. when a senator or somebody person goes, well, how big of an issue is that? Oh, and I go, trapping, man. well, I got 41,000 hits. On that post, my God, I go, yeah, but this is what's going on in the community, but it's like a newspaper. Yeah. You know how many are printed, but you don't ever know how many got read. Except for on Facebook. Well, that's Except a, for on Facebook, exactly. The funny thing about the politics side, and especially you start talking about the state assembly and the state senate, is everything goes through committee. Yeah. So if we can educate the people on the vital committee, number one, and talk about code calling contests, People don't realize that if I'm a senator from Las Vegas, I'm an inner city senator from Las Vegas, I've never hunted in my life, chances are. Right? Pretty good, yeah. So, so I come from a different background. I hear, man, these guys are out here and they're shooting 20 or 30 or 50 coyote, whatever it is for that contest. They've got their their AR, 55. What they're not telling them is where these coyote calling contests are. Or taking place. Are, yes. are not in the city. They're next no. to the cattle ranches and... And so it's actually a big... If you've been here for 50 years and you've never heard of one, they're doing a good job. Exactly. Of and, and, and the idea is, the reason they became so popular in these smaller areas is because the cattle ranchers were yeah. getting devastated. Yeah. Getting, their, their herds were getting decimated by predators. Sheep herders, everything. Absolutely. And so they, they found this is a way to help manage that population, to manage their livestock, which people that come from southern Nevada, especially people that never have been out of southern Nevada don't realize that agriculture is a huge part of the economy in Nevada. Yeah. And so when we can have those coyote calling contests and stuff like that to manage those or we're bringing predator hunters in to manage some of these areas or, you know, we have people would never understand this. They went after the trappers. Not only do we have state trappers, but we have federal trappers that yeah. trap on state federal Absolutely. land. Absolutely. The exact same thing as a regular trapper does. And, yeah. and, and they except for how much do they get paid for it? They get paid a lot, and yeah. they don't have a season. You know, yeah. they they go where there's so a. What problem. do they do with the carcasses? They toss them. They can't keep them. Yeah, yeah. they they got to toss them, and so I, I think there's ways to manage it, and and we need that political arm that a knows like you guys are doing and going to interview in the center and saying, hey, if you got a question on wildlife related thing, come to us. We'll we'll give you the information. And it comes with having the knowledge, doing the research, all that. But it also pays to know who the players are in the game 
that yes. you need to align yourself with the best. So I'm not going to go out to a baseball game and make sure I get the best left fielder and that's where I'm going to spend all my money on. Yeah, you need a solid left fielder. But if you don't have a pitcher that can throw the ball on home plate, you're getting exactly. nowhere. So if we don't have these guys in the committees that, that we've formed a relationship with, and that's part of the lobbying thing is you, you got to find a build a relationship. And it's not, hey, if you do this for me, I'm going to take you out and get you a nice steak dinner. Yeah. It's having those conversations. And part of it is we talked about is you come into these wildlife commission meetings and, and you come in and you present your case and you have facts and, and you're polite and you can get passionate, but you don't make it personal. Those are when those, those things are going to have happen. And with having a sportsman's coalition that can go in and every time we're going to see the same face come in there. And so if it's, I got a question about mule deer, I'm going to come to Mike and I'm going to say, Hey Mike, I've got some questions. What are the numbers look like? Do we need to do something over here? Or, Hey, they're, they're talking about this testing range up here and they want to expand it. Well, what, what do you, what do you guys think? And, and what are the pros and the cons of, right. of expanding that area? Certainly, we're going to be able to keep some sheep in there a little bit longer than they're going to get hunted out. But at the same time, we're going to kill a lot of sheep because now they're overpopulated. So it's having that expert opinion. I think you guys do an excellent job with that. And I think that coalition really, as far as the sportsman's group, there's no banquet for it. There's no there's, not, there's, there's no thunder and lightning and applause. It's all happening in the background. But I think that's... They're doing big work. The, the politics side of it is one of the most vital sides a sportsman yeah. can have because... If we can get the politicians on board with with keeping the sports growing and not limiting us so bad, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna come out ahead. And everybody hates a politician, you know, until you need a politician to help you out. So if we could build these relationships first and not have a point to where we have to go to them only to ask them for a favor, if we have that relationship built up that you guys have built up, I think it goes a long ways in getting what we need. And the results have proven that to us. I mean, um, like you said earlier about you can't just start off any conversation with yelling and screaming. No, we're, we're a member of the public, and so we go in and we talk to them and says, look, we want you to be here for a while because we don't want to change all the time. And every time we turn around, we got a brand new uh, assembly person or senator in there that doesn't understand this. So... Um, we try to go in and basically just educate them so that they can make a more educated decision on how they want to vote on it and try not to make it a party vote. And it doesn't matter. I mean, if you you can have the most conservative Republican in there that is pro-wildlife, but if he's not doing what we need to get done yeah. and he can't get anything done, it doesn't help us. And I know that's that's part of the game. I, I deal with it at work all the time is... I don't want to have to train a new contractor every single time. Yeah. I want to be able to work with the old contractors where we can make a viable for them to come back and do business with us again. And then that way, I've trained them once. So I don't need to train them again. So if we can keep some of these these good centers, be it, there's some, some Democrats that have been very good for, for a while. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they have. And, and there's yeah. been some, some national politicians that are Democrats that are yeah. very liberal other places, but on the conservation side, they're who we need. And and I think when you when you look at that is we have to play the cards wherever we can play them, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or an independent or a liberal or a conservative, however you want to label them, it really boils down to how can we get them to play nice in our 
than our pasture. Right, right. That's a, that's a good point, and, and you guys may not be aware of it, but we have a Congressional Sportsman's Caucus organization. Who's on that? Um, well, uh, Morris and Bass Pro. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of guys. There's, there's NASCAR guys on it. But this is a this is a, a national uh, congressional sportsman's caucus, okay? That does it, and it was as through there. Um, Andy Trehorn is a, is uh, just moved up is his position on there. But Andy Trehorn, I met him uh, probably three sessions ago, four sessions ago, and he came. That was his first time of coming to the Nevada legislature. So we actually had federal congressional people starting to show up in our state. And they said, you know, we need to help start educating our sportsmen. As a result of that, I learned that we didn't have a Nevada Sportsman's Caucus. Therefore, when you have a caucus wildlife bill coming in, you cannot have any input on it because your state does not have a Sportsman's Caucus. Therefore, we started, I think it was four sessions ago, um, we started a, a Nevada Sportsman's Caucus. It's nonpartisan, so you have two senators, a Democrat and Republican, okay. and then you have a uh, lead uh, assembly person on the Democratic side and the Republican side, and then you can have other people that want to sign on. Debbie Smith, the Democrat, was the first one to start it. She passed away, she died of cancer, but she was a huge friend of sportsmen, she got it going. She got everybody in the legislature, except for one person, to sign on to the Sportsman's Caucus. Really? Yes. It didn't go real far. It's still alive today. And so with our new 2021 caucus coming up, um, I the, the last one was Mo Dennis on the Democratic side, and you had Ira Hansen um, on there. And then I believe you had Chris Brooks and... I'm not sure on the Republican side, but I will uh, be finding out the assignments and seeing uh, who's who's on that again for this next year. And those we'll probably be meeting and, and talking with. And we, there's another organization, Friends of Nevada's Wildlife, goes in February or March and actually does a luncheon of last session we did it of actually game animals. Uh -huh. It's cooked up, everybody can come in and they can taste some phenomenal food in there. Duck, pheasants. Really? And so it's an open door in the Yeah, in Carson City where the senators and the Senate people can come in, introduce yourself, mingle, have a lunch, uh -huh. listen to some speakers. It's a one hour lunch. And who does the cooking for that? Um, uh, Gil Yonick is the one who sets it up okay. and he finds. Uh, I can't remember who he used last year, yeah. but it was very good. It was very well received. Really? Yes. Oh, awesome. Yes. But those are some of the things that are the John Q. Sportsman that's out there watching this doesn't know that's what we're trying to do in our state to make everybody more aware of what's going on with our natural resources and our water. Well, because we hear that word lobbyist, and lobbyist yeah. has become a bad word. Lobbyist is background. Unpaid lobbyist. Well, yeah, yeah. but lobbyist is... is Portrayed by the public is the greasy backroom deals that yeah. you're you're given something to get something in return. We, but it's good we have Mike it, on our it, side to do that. Tell me, Hollywood hasn't had an effect on our world, right? Yeah, and, and, and that's and, and we need that. But I think with the Sportsman's Alliance, there's a lot, there's more of the showing. And so, yeah, you're putting on a luncheon, but it's a luncheon to get them familiar with what they're voting on, right? Yeah. So it's a luncheon to where 
hey, this is what venison tastes like. This is what duck yeah. tastes like. Some of these people, I mean, you, you look at the, the population in Nevada and look at our assembly, a majority of those assemblymen are coming from Clark County. Yes. So, so you have a majority of them, and Clark County, a majority of it's in inner city Clark County, and a majority of them have maybe never tasted wild game. And right. Especially right. you start talking more exotic things, like a lot of people might have tasted venison. But when we start talking about antelope, when we start talking about duck, and we start talking about pheasant, so now we start to talk about they can understand. They may not want to go out and shoot a pheasant, but they could understand why I'd want to harvest one and feed my family. So, uh, absolutely. So, absolutely. So it changes that dynamic, and it, you, you get plant that seed in their head. And so even if they were anti-hunter when they went into that luncheon, or they, they experienced that, you may have planted that seed that makes them see it just a little bit different, and maybe yeah. they have a little bit more understanding. And that's really what politics is about is, Trying to get the other side to understand your point of view. Yeah, true. And, true. And what's happened with politics now is we've gone so far to the left and the right that we just bash each other the entire time, and that's what politics has become. And, and it's sad. And, and you know, you, you talk about some people say, "Well, I got to go further to the right because they went further to the left, and that's going to bring us to the center." Well, that never works. At some point, you just got to come to the center. And the common interest for us and in, in our coalitions is. Wild game and conservation, and that's our interest. So, how do we bring the middle and have that interest, and bring both sides into the middle for that one particular interest? And you've got to have lobbying groups to do that. There's no way we yeah. can do it otherwise. Yeah, it's it, it's tough. Um, you made the comment about you know the amount of uh, assemb- uh, assembly people suffer in Clark County and, and centers. Yes. Because of that, ten years ago, the Northern Coalition came down and said. Hey guys, we're getting our butt kicked at the legislature. We know all the people up there because the majority of them were coming from up there. But they said, we don't know who some of these people are that are on the Natural Resource Committee or Government Affairs or something. So they said, we need to get somebody started down here. Um, it didn't start off with me. By default, I got left holding the bag. So it usually works. Isn't yes, it? yes. <laughs> but, but with that being said, you know, I was already on five committees and, and stuff like this, and I go, you know what? My life has been very fulfilled by hunting, fishing. I, I don't trap, but I have nothing against it. And I feel good knowing about what street my trout came out of rather than what grocery store. I feel better about knowing what part of the mountain my deer came from rather than the package of beef in the grocery store. Yeah, when you don't get attacked for five or six years, we kind of have to go. That's why you got to have more kids, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's the only thing to save my bacon is yeah. I've got kids that can hunt. Yeah. So. so, but once they do, once they understand, because the food is the health for us, and when they look at us and I go, so you're telling me I really shouldn't know what street my fish came out of? Or you really don't want me to know what part of the mountain my meat came off of? Yeah. Is that really the right way to live? And it causes them to stop and think and make us, well, you know, if it's worked for you, I mean, yeah, go ahead. And so, so you see the gloves kind of coming down a little bit. And they're like, wow. And then when you get an opportunity to taste it or, you know, or whatever, um, it can glitch it. Or it can just turn somebody off. I don't like, you know, a gamey taste or whatever. I mean, who does? 
Um, you know, I, I jokingly, because I don't drink, I say, well, you had to acquire a taste for alcohol. <laughs> well, I just acquired a taste for medicine. I absolutely I, I think people don't like gaming tasting meat because they haven't cooked it right. Yeah, yeah. and I and think, that's, yes. And that's, we had a podcast on, our last podcast was with Field the Grill, and that was part of the pres- the reason for the podcast is people don't cook their game right, and then they hate, yeah. they hate game animals because they didn't cook it right. Or, I would not believe how many people tell us they hate duck. Oh, it's awesome. And they're like, it is so nasty. I hate it. I'm like, well, you must have cooked it wrong or ate a coot. I don't yeah. know which one you did. Well, well the yeah. thing is that people don't realize that hunters are truly, I mean, it's as organic as it comes. Yes, it is. I mean, you're not going to get more knows. organic than being 30 miles off the road up in, up in a hill and dragging it down. I mean, that's going to be some of the best meat you're going to get. The, the fishermen, I'm not going to go fish a polluted stream. It's just, I'm not, I'm not going to yeah. do it. But man, we'll pull some fish out that are just outstanding, phenomenal, yeah. but better than you're going to get in any of these five-star restaurants on the strip. And we have the ability to do that as sportsmen, and it's not just limited to the current sportsmen. If we teach others to do the same thing, I don't care where you come from. Yeah, you have the ability to harvest your dinner the next day, whether it's you're in the poorest of poor neighborhoods, yeah. and and you know somebody gives you a fishing pole and you learn to fish. Yeah. You know, that's the, the, the old adage, you know, and, and there's there's opportunity there and there's opportunity that's not with any other sport. I can't go feed my family playing basketball. It's not going to happen. I'm a white man. <laughs> I can't shoot a basketball to save my life. It's not going to happen. But I sure as heck, even with minimal skill, yeah. can go out and harvest an animal to feed my family. And I think it now with as crazy as the world's gotten, it's a skill we need to teach our youth as well. Agreed. That's yeah. something that those kids, if everything came to the, to an end, those kids are going to be able to survive and feed themselves. And that's that's a gift that you'll never be able to give them yeah. any other way. So I joke about, I joke to my wife, I said kids nowadays don't even know how to start the fire to cook their food. Exactly. But, you, you know, that, that comes with, well, you can't eat, cook it until you learn how to build the fire. I mean, I, I couldn't hunt for a long time because I didn't know when taco season was. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh. hey, what's easy to use? <laughs> hey, we're yeah. getting a little low on time here, Mike. I want to, yeah. I want you, I, I don't know if you want to release it or this. You're such a wealth of knowledge. Are you, do you plan on having a medium to get out there with more knowledge coming up here? Because we could talk to you, I bet. I bet we go a whole 24 hours and still not get anything oh, out of the you know. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I'd like to do what I, in the future, um, I'd like to create a show uh, that's I've been thinking about it for a long time, thought, I just think you should know. Yeah. Or just thought you'd like to know. And talk about, you know, I hear you guys talk about a cap. What's a cap? Yeah. Well, that stands for Citizen Advisory Board of Managed Wildlife. And so we have a lot of younger, as he is, as uh, Brian is talking about, yeah. wanting to come in, but they're like, well, where do we start? How do we learn about this? And so the more that the word and the conversation gets out there about that, I think the level of education will rise with that. And I'd like to do a podcast. I'd like yeah. to do a, a live uh, where I actually bring, like you guys have brought me in as a guest yeah. and stuff. I mean, you guys are waterfowl gurus. I mean, I'd love to... I don't know about that, man. <laughs> We're definitely waterfall activists. So um, the addicts, the addicts. That's the thing. <laughs> there you go. Like, what, all what, what I wanted to say is, 
Mike, Mike came to, to our show tonight and I can't thank him enough because he is just like, we haven't got, like we, we've, we've, we've seen the tip of the iceberg. Like, yeah. but like there's so many other things I want to talk about on this show, but we still don't have enough time, man. And so we're going to bring him back on here, but with Mike starting up his show, we're definitely going to promote it. And he is, if you can listen to it, if you are a hunter or want to be a conservationist or just understand how Nevada works. Absolutely. I can't wait to see what Mike does here. Well, I think Ron and I kind of owe this this podcast really to Mike because <laughs> exactly. Mike, tell Mike. Mike came to, to Ron and says, hey, man, I got this idea. I want to do a podcast. And Ron's like, we've never done a podcast, but I bet you we can make it work. We but I love Mike. Man. And, and I really do. like Mike. And Mike's a great guy, and he's been such such a good asset to the community, yeah. both both in the wildlife community and just in the, the Las Vegas community in general. But so Ron started thinking about how we're going to do this podcast, how we make it work, th- this and that. So Ron called me one day and he goes, dude, I got this really stupid idea. <laughs> do you want to do a podcast? And so I got to figure it out so I can show Mike. Uh, yeah. I got to figure it out so I can show Mike how, how to do this. And so we're like, yeah. And so we did a podcast and we got some feedback on a podcast and then we did another and then it just kind of starting to snowball a little bit. And, and man, we, Oh, it all might need some help trying to set up this podcast and, and, and doing that. And I think there's a lot of great content there. And there's a lot that I think people just don't know yeah. and they don't know who to ask. And that's a, they don't know what to ask. Yeah. They don't know what to ask. And, and maybe it's, they kind of have a general idea, but they, they won't know it until they hear it type thing. And so I think a show like that where we talk about, you know, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how is going to give the people some of that knowledge that, that we're missing. I think it's going to help create a little bit more activism on the on the conservation side as well. Sure hope so. And, and, and I think, man, that's part of the way you get new growth and new leaders and, and new people to take the movement is, is you, you've got to put the hand out. And that's one of the things that that Mike's group's really big about is, man, they've got a lot of guys with a wealth of knowledge over in that, that Woods and Waters group that, man, are willing to take guys under their wing a little bit. And, yeah. And, and, and they need some of that younger blood sometimes to come in and, and to carry it on for them. Well, yeah. And, and before we cut off, one of the things that I wanted to let the public know, the reason I'm so excited about all of this, we all hear, well, well hunting's a dying art. It's dying off. It's going... So I'm a stats guy. I want to look and see. So I crunched the numbers for the last two years uh, of the deer applications. Okay? Big game applications. The age group from 11 to 15 outnumbered the age group from 70 and above. So it's all propaganda what people are saying. Absolutely. So when I saw that, and I saw it another year, that age group, and 16 up to 21, that was a huge group. I go, there's hope for this. Because these guys are excited about it because society has looked at, oh my God, you're a hunter, you know? Well, you're just murdering animals. And it's, like, it's, it's like, well, hold on. You don't, know, you, don't, you don't know how much time and effort I put in. You don't know how much money I put into this. Um, and I think that once that gets out, I'm very proud of what we do and how we've done. We, we have one hell of a record when organizations and stuff, but um, that's where my strength comes i got six grandkids now. I've done my hunting. I'm going to Alaska again this year fishing. 
I want my grandkids to just have the same opportunity to partake of some of those if they choose to. Well, I think there's a push. Um, we're looking at some stuff, but there's a a push to change the the group that goes hunting. So right now we have a group of kids that goes hunting because my dad went hunting, okay. my grandpa went hunting, or I have the financial means to go hunting. And I think the next big movement is actually going to be to get those kids that would never have the opportunity to experience it. Oh, yeah. Out to experience it. And I think you, if you can add that to what we have now with, with the youth coming into it, because kids are getting excited about shooting sports again and hunting. And, yeah. And, and they really are. And in a lot of places in the world, it's no longer in the big city. Everybody wants to be country. Uh, you know, and that's... So we, we have that going for us. And I think... If we can get these kids that would never have the opportunity, maybe financially or otherwise, yeah. socioeconomically, they just couldn't do it. I think we we can open a huge set of doors for all of us to experience better. Every penny that goes into those licenses is going to go back into yeah. conservation. And you know, with those youth, I mean, what what, what kids coming up that's going to be the next Mike Reese? What kids coming up that's going to be the next Robert Goddard? What kids going to be the next Ron Lori? You know. That wrong way, right? That's the yes. other thing. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, that's our future. And so, like Mike said, we have to get that young blood in them. We have to teach them how to do conservation. We have to teach them how to be advocates for themselves. Yeah. Because Mike's not going to be around forever. I'm not going to be around forever. Brian's going to die before all of us. So. It, it's amazing how many kids have never seen the falling star. As simple as that. Well, and, and it's uh, or a fallen duck. That's even well, better. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, but we we don't. A lot of times as hunters, we don't do ourselves any favors with the way we treat people inside our own community. Yeah. And, and the duck hunting community, we talked about this in our last episode, the duck hunting community is horrible about that, the way they treat other hunters. Just get better. So what kid is going to want to come back after you just screamed and yelled at them and called them every name in the book? They, they're going to want to do something that they enjoy. Well, guess Absolutely. what? When I sit down and play That's a video game, my, my video game doesn't scream and yell at me. So... Um, <laughs> We've got to make it. Nowadays with those and and as, as parents, for and I, I mean, it's tough sometimes to take a kid out and he misses on a on a super easy shot that he should have taken on a really nice buck. But we have to remember and, and keep ourselves in check that we want it to be fun for these kids and we want them to come out the next time. And, and I, we at Run, I have some stuff that is kind of in the works for, for some of the youth stuff that we hope we can announce here. Did you get a teaser? No, not too, too much. Not man. totally. But, questions. But we, uh, we hope to, to help solve that, some of that issue a little bit with bringing some more of these kids in that maybe wouldn't have an Good. opportunity. And, man, we, Mike, I know you, did you have some, some guys you needed to mention? Well, we had, uh, one of the, one of the uh, star guys with the fraternity is Eddie Pribble. Okay, um, we've talked about the fraternity and stuff here tonight. Um, he started, uh, he didn't start it. But he's been around since almost day one. But he's the driving force. The man knows, knows more about placement of guzzlers, how they work, all of that stuff. To me, he doesn't get enough recognition for it. But, uh, you know, the guy's phenomenal. Look up us, Las Vegas Woods and Waters. Ken Johnson is our founder. Third, we're, we're in our 30th year. Came from Texas, came to Vegas. Didn't know anybody. He's like, hey, uh, I used to belong to this uh, Dallas... Uh, hunting fishing club, why don't we start something like that out here? And that's how we got started. It was just a bunch of guys that met at a bar and said, hey, this is what we're talking about, this is what we're thinking of and stuff, and bam, it, it took off, and uh, 
we're at about 150 members. And dues are like, what, a thousand bucks a year? <laughs> yeah. Now, 25 bucks. I mean, come on. Yeah, and, it's... Uh, and stuff. You've got Wynn. You've had uh, Bill DeJunkers has been a driving force for a long time. And Ryan Warner was in there. Helped out with that. you got Kevin McNair, who's the current president right there. Kevin McNair, as far as the community goes, he does the uh, CCW classes. There's, there's a lot of guys that are in the hunting and fishing community that are plumbers, that are carpenters, that are electricians. Yeah. We should probably call ourselves a blue-collar, blue-collar hunting club, <laughs> whatever, because that's we're not rich because we hunt. No, we're not. We're definitely not Three boxes of shells for a limited time. We're a lot happier, though. Absolutely. Exactly. Don't need counseling. Yeah, when it comes to our motto about taking with teaching, when Mike Reese is big about teaching, he's always teaching one or teaching teaching the multitudes. So and These guys at Woods and Water, man, I'll tell you that they, you want to see somebody that hunts and fishes hard, these guys will hunt and fish hard all day. And man, we really appreciate you coming on with us today. Mike, it's been a joy. Back and see if we can talk a little little more at another time but I think that's about our time so remember if we're going out this week take one if you're going to take and teach them and if you can't do either of those hunt hard thanks Mike thanks, keep Mike. your powder dry and we'll see you later